Society builders paved the way to a better world, to a better day. A united approach to building a new society. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. Ooh. Society builders with your host, Dwayne Veron. Welcome to Society Builders, and thanks for joining the conversation for social transformation. Communities of faith often play a critical role in the path to depolarization. Depolarization requires us to transcend the emotional reactions that drive us against those we see as outsiders. And this business of transcending our base instincts is something that a person's faith can greatly help facilitate. Now, we all know that religious communities are frequently the catalysts feeding polarization, an embarrassing stain on the reputation of religion. So we're not denying this today, but by the same token, we should recognize religion's power to get us to transcend ourselves. And there are numerous examples of how communities of faith contribute to depolarization often in the face of impossible odds. Here we see the example of the Baha'i community in Iran contributing to their best capacity to the societies around them despite facing the highest levels of persecution. But naturally, this kind of depolarization is not something limited to Baha'i communities alone. It's something which many communities of faith champion. So today we're going to explore this all a little further. And we're going to do this through the example of a remarkable leader. Today's episode features my interview with Rabbi Roli Matalon, the senior rabbi of the B'nai Jeshurun Jewish community in New York City, the second oldest Jewish congregation in New York. He's the recipient of numerous awards, both in recognition for his contributions to Jewish community life, but also for his contributions to human rights. Now, Rabbi Rowley features prominently in Amanda Ripley's book, High Conflict, but I think you'll enjoy hearing his story directly from him. It sets a remarkable example of how communities of faith can engage with depolarization. I interviewed Rabbi Rowley some months ago before the current conflict in Gaza. And what I think you're going to enjoy in particular is the story of how he facilitated an exchange with member of his congregations who are strong liberal progressives to live with deep red Trump supporters from a prison union in Michigan. It's such an amazing and moving story. So today we feature an interview with Rabbi Roli Matalon and explore how he helped his congregation engage with depolarization. Rabbi Rowley, welcome to Society Builders. My pleasure. Dwayne, thank you so much for, for, for asking me to participate in this uh, with you and be part of this conversation. Rabbi Rowley, you've had such an amazing impact on the revitalization of Jewish synagogue life and received so many awards and you've done so many interesting things. But one of the most interesting, for me at least, reading it on the outside, was this initiative that you did around this idea of depolarization. What was it that led you 
to start grappling with that depolarization issue. So we had conflict in our congregation around the issue of Israel and Palestine. Our congregation is almost 200 years old. Our bicentennial will be in 2025. How exciting. <laughs> yeah. And it was a very prominent congregation that then declined back in the late 70s, early 80s. And it was almost bankrupt spiritually, financially, physically. The actual physical synagogue was in great disrepair. And I had a mentor who was an American rabbi who had spent 25 years building Jewish community in Argentina. And that's where I grew up and was born and raised. And then this rabbi came back to 25 years to be the spiritual leader of this congregation here in New York City. And I was finishing my rabbinical studies here. So I started with him. And the congregation originally in its revitalization was pretty homogeneous. We're all very progressive. But then as the congregation grew, a number of people started joining, not necessarily because they agreed with the politics of the rabbis or even the majority of the members, but some people like the music and the prayer service. And some people had friends in the community whom they wanted to join. Some people liked our religious school. And so they started bringing their kids to religious school. And not everybody ended up being in the same ideological camp, particularly as it pertains to issues of Israel and Palestine. And at some point around 2012 or 13, there was a very, very big conflict that erupted in this congregation around Israel and Palestine. And many people were very angry and left. Other people were very angry and stayed. And we had to figure out a way to bring the congregation together, not to allow it to break and to generate some dialogue out of this situation. So we created an initiative uh, called the Israel Dialogue Initiative with help from some people who were experienced in trying to bring people around and to listen to each other intentionally to try to relate to each other with curiosity for each other's positions and to be able to agree to disagree, but to do so civilly and calmly and, and learn ultimately that disagreements, which there's a lot of teachings about disagreements in the Jewish tradition. You know, our tradition produced the Talmud, which actually is a creation that took place in Mesopotamia in the first few centuries of the common era, complete around the year 450, 500 in today's Iraq and Iran in that area. And the Talmud, it's a work that is based on debates and disagreements about all sorts of issues, legal, philosophical, theological, and so on. And our tradition is very, very rooted in the tradition of disagreement for the sake of truth. For the sake of getting to some deeper level of truth, you have to be able to, you know, to bring people who don't agree with each other to ultimately try to refine ideas, to try to refine their views and so on. And so our tradition is very, very rich on teachings about the, the value of disagreement. 
not as a negative thing, but as a positive thing when it's qualified, when it's for the sake of, it says, when it's for the sake of heaven, in other words, for the sake of a greater truth, for the sake of growth, for the sake of spiritual growth, not for personal gain, right? So back to 2012, 13, 14, we did this process and it was quite successful. We did trainings and all sorts of ways with, with members of the congregation. Now, fast forward a number of years later, and we find ourselves in 2018. And this is already a couple of years into the Trump presidency and the polarization in our country, which existed before now is, is growing deeper and deeper. And it's of great concern. And we thought, you know, what can we do in order to be able to contribute in some way to the repair and the healing of this great gap and this polarization between people in this country. And so it just happened that somebody that is a friend and also somebody with whom we had done some work in the past year in our congregation was doing some consulting work for this union of correctional officers in Michigan. It happens that this is a group of correctional officers who are of a conservative persuasion, but this union is part of a much larger national union, which tends to be progressive. So they find themselves these correctional officers as a group within a much larger group with which most of the time they are in disagreement. And so he was advising our friend Simon was advising this group and he said, you know, what would you think of having some sort of a encounter conversation dialogue with, with these people? And I said, I'm jumping right in. It sounds so fascinating. <laughs> and interesting. Was it that simple for you? It sounds like you weren't like terrified or <laughs> I was not terrified. I was, I was fascinated by the idea that. You know, there was an opportunity here to learn, of course. I mean, at some point I asked myself, is it going to work? Are we going to be screaming at each other? Who will we encounter? Are these people who are like, you know, from another planet? Of course, my initial reaction was absolutely. Then I, then I started questioning, right? <laughs> I mean, the fascination in the beginning, I felt very, very drawn to this idea, particularly because I also trust this, this person, Simon, a great, great uh, regard for him and, uh, and for his work, I trust him. And if this suggestion came from him, there must be something in here, you know, that, that is valuable. And so then I had all sorts of questions, you know, will, will it be uncomfortable? Will there be explosions? What will happen? So on. So what, what exactly was the proposition? The proposition was to put together a group of 12 members of our congregation who would agree to be First of all, pre in a preparation process to then go to Michigan, to some rural areas around Lansing, Michigan, and spend three days there with a group of 12 members of this union, corrections officers, men and women. And then they would reciprocate and they would come here to New York City and stay with us. We stayed with them and then they would come and stay with us in New York City and spend a Shabbat with us and come to our synagogue and get to know our families and us and so on. 
And so what happened is that we, we constituted a group. We, we actually invited people in the congregation to apply for this opportunity. Now, remember, this is 2018 and people are disgusted with, in our congregation, in particular, you know, liberal progressive people with people who are Trump supporters, but a number of people did actually apply to participate in this encounter. And we had a number of criteria that we selected 12 members of the congregation, different ages, different occupations, men, women, and so on. And we constituted the group and then two representatives from the mission group came to, to meet them and talk to them and introduce themselves. And we did a number of exercises that evening and, and then we continued, we did a couple of sessions to prepare ourselves to go there. Now, the encounter was mediated and was, was very structured. It was guided by Simon and another person that was working with him. And so we, we left Sunday morning, we got to Michigan and, and we got to Lansing and we met the group and we had our first session there and, uh, and then we shared a meal together and then we went to the different homes, you know, I'll tell you my experience. I, I was with the, with the head of the union. I met in his, I think at the time was in his early fifties and he was a corrections officer. And we drove from the first gathering, you know, that Ed concluded with a meal. We drove to his home about 45 minutes. And, and so he told me his story in the car, you know, and it was incredibly moving. I mean, he's a very, very wonderful man, very spiritual man with a lot of integrity. We got to his home, he introduced me to his family, to his wife with, you know, we, we talked for for a while and then, and then we went to sleep. I mean, we had gotten up very early that day. And the next day we met in small groups for breakfast. So myself and my host and a couple of other people and their hosts, and we had a conversation in small groups for breakfast. And then we met as a large group and then we went to visit their workplace. And I had been in a prison more than once I visited people in jail as a rabbi. I visited people in jail for many years, but I was in the jail in the visiting room. I had never been to where people are jailed and where the inmates, you know, the, where they are. This visit was into a jail that actually had been decommissioned. It was no longer a jail, but many of them had worked in that place. So they took us everywhere. There were no inmates there. And then they told us what their job was like. We all began to understand something that we had never been exposed to before. I never knew what corrections officers do, prison guards, and what they are exposed to, what they're dealing with. I never heard anybody tell the story of what goes through their mind, what decisions they make, what's their relationship with the inmates in the jail. It was fascinating. It was moving. It was. It was deeply human. And so we got to understand their lives, you know, a little bit, a little bit, there were a little window into their lives. And you know, you would think all these people are disgusting, are animals, they are racist. And you begin to, in many ways, to share all these prejudices and all these preconceived ideas 
and begin to understand human beings. Why they end up doing that work? Of course, it's something that people in our circles, in my congregation, our circles, we would never choose to do something like that. But you begin to understand why people make those choices, you know, sometimes forced by life circumstances where they live and so on and so forth. And, and then we met with their families. We learned about their lives. We talked about religion, their religious ideas. It was really fascinating. Some of them are preppers. You know what preppers are? People who, first of all, most of them have weapons in their homes. One of the members of the group was hosting two members of my congregation had like 70 to 80 weapons in their home. Wow, 70 to 80. It's <laughs> a lot of weapons. Some of them were heirlooms. It's a lot of weapons. Heirlooms, things that they acquired. I mean, like different types of weapons. Uh, a lot of these people are into weapons. Many of them hunt. And some of them are preppers, are people who are getting ready for, you know, if there's some sort of a war in America or revolution or some natural disaster, they have bunkers and basements with all sorts of provisions and food and weapons and all sorts of things that they need for a potential catastrophe. Even the idea that the government might turn against its citizens, right? So wow. the reason many of them have weapons is that because they feel that one day the government may, may turn against them and begin to persecute its own citizens. And so, you know, something that I never thought about, I don't think about that. And I don't, you know, believe in America, something like that would happen, but they believe it will happen or it may happen. So all sorts of things, you know, we talked about, it, it was the time of the Muslim ban. So we talked about Muslims. We talked about abortion and birth control. We talked about immigration. There was no issue that was not on the table. And everything was sort of in, in conversations that were, were, I mean, it was control, you know, that we're, we were not screaming at each other. We were looking at newspaper articles, things that they read, things that we read. I'm telling you, Dwayne, it was, it was a fascinating, fascinating, rich three days. And we all felt, in my group, we all felt connected to these people. Amazing. Amazing. Were there discussion areas where you felt you found common ground? You know, there, there was not a lot of common ground about a lot of things, not about Trump and not about, not even about Israel, because our group is much more progressive about Israel, and they couldn't believe that we as Jews would be critical of the government of Israel. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, yes, I mean, there were a number of areas, you know, in terms of some moral issues and some spiritual issues, but there was a lot of areas of disagreement and, and also to try to come to some sort of consensus, some things, for example, on homosexuality, right? So, you know, in the beginning, among the surfers, we were far apart, but some of them have relatives who are, you know, LGBT. And so their attitude is softer than on the surface in the beginning, where you project some sort of a political position, right? 
But then once you begin to scratch the surface, you find that those positions are not so set in stone, you know, so solid. And so we began the conversation in some of these issues and penetrate below the surface. And we found, for example, a lot of, of common ground on race. You would think, you I, know, everybody, you know, they're racist. Not true. It's not true. There is some racial prejudice and there are also some racial prejudice on our part. And there's prejudice on our part towards people who are like them, you know? So prejudice is not exclusively on that, on that side. A few months later, I think we went there in the beginning of May and they came here mid-June. To New York Good City. time for New York. <laughs> and it was really great. You know, we went to Round Zero together. And Amazing. Museum, which was very, very meaningful for them. You know, we live here and we experience this and so on. But for them, it was like really going to a holy site. And particularly because so many first responders, you know, police I, and, and, right. and public servants of that, of that nature fell. On that day, for them, it was, it was, it was deeply, deeply meaningful. They came to services. I think for all of them, if not the vast majority, but if not for all of them, this was the first time in a synagogue. And so we had people sit with them and explain, and they had, I think, very interesting experience of being in a synagogue at see you know, they never met Jews, many of, most of them before. Right, right. And the next day, some of them went touring on Saturday morning. Some of them came to services with us and they were staying in, in our homes. And then on Saturday, after the service, we have, usually we share some food and there's a moment for sort of community and uh, fellowship and they joined us. And then we had a panel. So there were three or four of them on a panel. And there were 200 members of our congregation went to attend this presentation. Let me tell you that it ended with a standing ovation. Wow. Our, That's remarkable. It was, remarkable. We, uh, we were, many of us were in tears. They were in tears. It was remarkable because they were so honest and earnest and willing to, to take the risk of sharing some things that are, are politically incorrect in our congregation, but they said it with grace and they were very generous. And so people really gave him a standing ovation. We spent the whole afternoon, Saturday, talking and doing more exercises. And then on Saturday night, we, some of the hosts took the group to, you know, down to Times Square and places like that. And then on Sunday, we went to the Lower East Side and we visited we visited the uh, museum, you know, that is about the, the first immigrants that came to New York, you know, Jewish and Irish and Italian and the settlements down there. And then, and then we walked around the Chinatown Chinese neighborhood and we talked about immigration, the story of uh, immigration of New York city and the importance of immigration and so on and so forth. And one of the, one of the encounters actually was very meaningful. We have a relationship with a church, neighboring church, like two blocks from the synagogue. Our, our synagogue had a problem. The building had a problem 
back in 1991, and we had to move out of our sanctuary. And we spent 25 years in a Methodist church, two blocks away. What a wonderful story. What a wonderful story. That's it was amazing. amazing. It was amazing. That's another story I'll tell you another time, but it, it was, it was very, very formative, foundational for our congregation back as we were coming back to life in the, in the late eighties, early nineties. And so we spent 25 years in that Methodist church. That's also part of the dialogue. You know, it's, it's many ways. It's in the DNA of this community to try to find. It's amazing. It's amazing. So that church was hosting, was serving a sanctuary for a woman who was an asylum seeker from Guatemala. And this was in the Trump years. So ICE was after her and they were offering sanctuary for her in the church. So she, she couldn't leave the church. She was in the church for a couple of years and members of the congregation, our congregation, their congregation were, you know, just coming, bringing food and, and so on and so forth. We brought the Michigan group to meet with her. What an so interesting encounter. What an interesting encounter. <laughs> very, very interesting encounter because they think all these people are rapists and criminals because Trump had told them. All the people coming on the southern border, they're rapists and criminals and so on. So she told the story why she, she had left Guatemala and what had happened to her family down there and crime and gangs and so on. And why she had to come here with her husband and they had a child. They were living in Westchester and so on and so forth. And she was working. And then she realized that her papers were not in order and ICE was after her. And the story of immigration got a human face. Not just in Fox News and in the, you know, some sort of a story of crime and these people are coming to take our jobs and so on, but a human face. So it was, it was extraordinary. There was a follow-up to the story. Oh, wonderful. Which is, which is that a number of months later. There was the attack in the synagogue in, in Pittsburgh, synagogue yes. called and 11 people were murdered on a, on a Shabbat morning at services by a guy who was now on trial, right? He's been found guilty and now they're trying to determine what the sentence will be, right? Is it life in jail or is it death sentence and so on? So, so that happened in October. November of 2018, just a, a few days after that, we had scheduled a phone call with a group. We had, we were having periodic phone calls with a group in order to continue the, the conversation. You know, first we did a debrief and then we just continued to talk about the issues. And we had a phone call scheduled for Monday and the, and this attack happened the Saturday before. So two days later, we are on a phone call. And they said, we are so shocked by what happened because now we know Jews and we feel you're our family. Wow. And so an attack on a synagogue is an attack on all of us, on our family. Yeah. I will, I mean, it was, I am so moved as Amazing. I'm saying this. Amazing. Right. Amazing. I'm talking. Yeah. Before we knew you, you know, Jews were Jews. After we met you, you're our family. So we are outraged. We are going to write a statement and so on. We would like 
to come to the synagogue, to send a delegation to the synagogue the following week to express our solidarity and to read a statement before the congregation and to denounce the decry anti-Semitism in our country. These are amazing, right? White, white corrections officers, Trump voters in their majority from Michigan, rural. So you would think, right, all of these people are supporters of right-wing anti-Semites and so on. They came here and they made a statement before the congregation. One of our members is a congressman. He was there. And it was, it was very, very moving. Now, at the same time, the corrections officers are trying to present some of their issues before, before Congress, some of the issues that they're dealing with that put their lives in danger because of overcrowding of jails, because of the privatization of jails. This is all things that they are very much against because they pay the price for this. First of all, they see that the, the inmates get worse conditions. And because they get worse conditions, their job is much more difficult. First of all, selfishly, they fear our jobs are much more difficult. We live with greater danger and greater anxiety and so on and fear. And at the same time, we see these human beings who who committed crimes, but are human beings who are being treated worse than they were before because of all these things going on. And they, for a long time, they've been trying to put their issues before, you know, local state assemblies or Congress, not always very successfully. So we determined that we were going to support their effort and to try to, you know, to allow them to present their issues and to be heard. And so a number of our people supported that effort. You see, so now we have a partnership. They amazing, amazing. So it's, it, it, it was a very, very productive and moving thing. And, and if anything, we learn, you know, to, to, to listen to other people. And we don't agree, I mean, about lots of things. I mean, we disagree ferociously about many other things. But, but with, with respect. How, how do you think you're a different person now as a result of that encounter? How have you changed as a person? For me, I always refer to this experience as something absolutely transformative because the way it transformed me is that I may not agree with the issues. And, and yes, there are some people that do hateful things and have hateful views, and that's true. But not everybody who is a Trump voter, a conservative, or a whatever, you know, in, in whatever other context with whom you don't agree is necessarily a despicable human being. There's a human being there. And to discover the human being, to understand the context of their lives, to understand why they came to such positions or conclusions and, and so on. It's, I mean, people are complex. And it's possible to talk, it's possible to die, it's possible to change your views on certain things and for them to change their views about certain things too, you know, and it, it, it was very, very transformative. The power 
both discovering somebody, you know, and this was, I mean, we were together for a total of six days. Right. It's not like we were together for right. months. Right, right. But six days, you know, three days there and three days here was sufficient to be able to break that ice and to break through the surface and begin to break the prejudice and the preconceived how, ideas. How do you, you know, now with this experience under your belt, I mean, it's different than reading about it. It's different than theorizing about it, right? Now you have this deep experience with it. How do you think that this whole issue of polarization and depolarization, how do you frame this as a spiritual problem? It is a spiritual problem because it is, it is a problem about discovering another person's humanity. Humanity and the human soul are spiritual issues, right? So just to hear somebody else, to understand, to relate, not just to dismiss because you have different political ideas, but just to try to understand, to, number one, that's a spiritual issue. The other thing is, who says that I have the truth? You know, I mean, it's not a perspective, but I mean, great point. That's also a great point. Issue, right? Great point. Um, so much of the problems of our world are because people think they have the truth and it's exclusively theirs. <laughs> exactly. That's not, exactly. And my truth is greater than yours. So to question yourself, to be willing to make yourself vulnerable in that sense and open and to listen to somebody else. To be open to listen, to really listen to somebody else, even if you disagree, but to let it penetrate, to open your soul. And not everybody wants to do that. And I, I actually believe that being part of a spiritual community, I'm not saying that only people who are religious or spiritual could engage in something like that, but I think that being part of a spiritual practice often prepares you for something like that. You know, because when you're in community, you know, not everybody is the same. And, and you know, there, there are also different people in community. And not just politically, but also the way people are. You know, you have to, you have to be tolerant when you're in community to people who do things differently or not like you or you may not like, but you're part of the same fellowship. You have to be open and tolerant and see the other person's humanity. Right when you're in community, and second, I think those of us will practice prayer. You know, it forces you to open your heart and to have to practice a certain openness. And and when you practice a certain openness, and then you can put it to use in the service of cooperation and understanding and solidarity. And our religious teachings, you know, are very sort of deeply rooted in the notion that, uh, at least uh, in, in, the, in the Jewish tradition and, and others, you know, that human beings are created in the image of God. All human beings are created in the image of God, not just some. And that we all have the same ancestors, Adam and Eve, in, in, our, in the biblical tradition, are the ancestors of, of all humanity. We, we all have, you know, we all come from the same place. So. When you are steeped in those ideas, and not just intellectually, but also spiritually, emotionally, you remind yourself of that all the time, and you be part of a community that tries to live that out, then eventually, if you practice enough, then you, 
you find that you might be open for something like that, you know, like this experience that we have. And all the members of our community were, were deeply, deeply affected by this. And, and the members of their community in Michigan were deeply affected by this. It was, what it a was wonderful. I think we were very surprised. Yeah, an amazing story. So what next? Where do you go from there? <laughs> what an amazing encounter and an amazing, you know, adventure. But but where do you go next? What next for you, so, for you, for so your what congregation? We did try to, to spread the story because it was only limited to a number of people, you know, 12 people and a very big congregation. So then we all related the story many, many times within the community. We had a video, we had sessions, we, you know, tried to, and try to invite people to, to try this with family members, neighbors. And we spoke a lot about the transformative power experience like that. And we were in the process of uh, building an experience like that with an Orthodox congregation in Manhattan, the other side of the park on the east side, we're on the west side, that has a different approach to Jewish practice and also is more conservative in their views in general and particularly about Israel. We have very, very serious disagreements in general over Israel. And so we had started putting together a group that would meet over a year on a monthly basis with studying and conversation and so on and so forth. We had asked to apply and we had selected a group and this was March of 2020 and COVID started and we debated whether to do it on Zoom and so on. We decided this should not be done on Zoom. And we postponed it and then one thing took over, another thing took over and we, it, it never, it never materialized, but it was almost there. So now the question is, we've done things like this for short of, so a number of years ago, after Michigan, after the Michigan thing in 2019, I took a group to Israel of members of my congregation it was about 35 members. And we did this with a group of settlers. And, and people who were sort of more on the right in, in Israel. Actually, we joined a group of Israeli Jews who had some were settlers and some were people who were more, more liberal. And we joined this conversation as a third group, as a group of Jews living in the diaspora. It was very, very interesting. So, you know, we, we try to find places where we can have this experience, not as intense as we had there. Well, it's such an amazing example, Rabbi Rowley. So please keep up the work. What advice would you have for the Baha'i community? So the Baha'i community, you know, we're, we're grappling with this issue now too, you know, well, we will be looking over the course of the next 25 years and how to put these ideas in practice. So what advice would you have for us? The advice is humbly, I, I, I suggest that it is great to meet other human beings, even people with whom you disagree and try to discover their humanity and try to understand, and you don't have to agree about everything. Now, 
I told you about the church when we moved in the church, it was 1991. And in the city of New York, there was heightened tensions between different groups here, blacks and Jews in particular in 1991. And a couple of years later, we put together a group of 12 Christians from the church, Methodists, 12 members of my congregation and 12 members of a mosque. Most of them are African-American Muslims. And we had, we had six sessions originally, two in the mosque and four in the church, hosted two by each group with also conversation, discussion, and so on. And then we continued monthly for a year after that. So, you know, we've been doing this for a while and it also was amazing. I mean, to learn, you know, learn about each other's holiday celebrations, life cycle events, theology, history. So my advice to my Baha'i brothers and sisters is, is try, you know, try to find groups with whom you can have a conversation. If you have a Baha'i group in New York, I think it would be great to have some conversation with us, you know, to have some sort of mutual discovery. We'll have to get that organized. That sounds really you, exciting. Most of you don't, don't know much about the Baha'i faith. So it would be great to, to learn. Fantastic. Well, Rabbi Roly, thank you so much for joining us on Society Builders. Thank you so much, Dwayne. My pleasure. My pleasure. Anytime. Blessings to you and, and your, and your uh, fellow Baha'i uh, friends. Well, that was my interview with Rabbi Rowley. I have to tell you that we did this interview over Zoom, and at one point, both of us had tears welled up in our eyes. I mean, it's such an incredibly moving story, right? And Rabbi Rowley set such an amazing example for all communities of faith, celebrating the opportunities that exist for us to really get to know others before we rush to judge them. Again, when you hear the story of these exchanges, none of this was about persuading the other side. It wasn't about convincing them of the errors of their ways. What it was about was about injecting the discourse with humanity, about better understanding each other, even if we continue to disagree. On a personal level, I am deeply grateful to the good rabbi for the lessons he's taught me through this interview. One note of caution, though, I think it's important to remember that advice from Dr. Peter Coleman a few episodes back. Simple contact between opposing groups is not enough. A big part of the success of Rabbi Rowley's exchange was the structure that framed it. There were experienced mediators guiding the process. The participants receive some basic training before meeting their counterparts. There is an art to doing this all successfully. And I think this only highlights how important it is that we all get better acquainted with the science of depolarization, which is exactly what we're striving to do in this series. So once again, I want to thank Rabbi Rowley, but I also want to thank you for joining in our conversation today. That's it for this episode. I look forward to continuing our conversation next time on Society Builders. Ah!
Society builders paved the way to a better world, to a better day. A united approach to building a new society. There's a crisis facing humanity. People suffer from a lack of unity. It's time for a better path to a new society. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. So engage with the local communities and explore the exciting possibilities. We can elevate the atmosphere in which we move. The paradigm is shifting. It's so very uplifting. It's a new beat, a new song, a brand new groove. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. But high faith has a lot to say Helping people discover a better way With discourse and social action Framed by unity Now the time has come to lift the game And apply the teachings of the greatest name And rise to meet the glory of our destiny Join a conversation For social transformation Society builders For social transformation, society builders.